idea of Christian and suffering, those are like oil and water. We don't suffer. And so, but we're su- not suffering for the sake of suffering. You're suffering as uh, Peter would say for good. So in relation to this, this racial reconciliation and the work to water, it is hard work. So it is teaching and conversing and having the conversations with us, including young people, that is this something that's worth suffering for? Because this this work is hard and is it worth suffering for? And is the suffering toward racial reconciliation Is it redemptive? Is it for good? And is that good worth it? Welcome to the Missing Voices podcast. This podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. We are convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So, with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. I'm Rachel Davis, one of your co-hosts, and during this series, we will hear from some of our partners, coaches, theologians, and friends of the Missing Voices Project. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Today, we are joined by Reverend and soon-to-be Dr. Kermit Moss. As both pastor and scholar, you will hear the wrestling and imagination that Kermit has to share around the ideas discussed in today's episode. This is no surprise to me, as I was fortunate to have Kermit as a professor during his interim as director for the Center of Black Church Studies at Princeton Seminary. But... I am excited to announce that since the recording of this conversation, Kermit has recently joined the faculty of Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary in Columbia, South Carolina. Please enjoy today's episode with Kermit Moss. Okay, everybody, I am here with the one and only Reverend Kermit Moss. Kermit, are you there? I am here. All right, my friend, we're going to do a podcast. You want to do that? This sounds fun. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) I got to know Kermit when we were in seminary together, and uh, we spent some time on the playgrounds. Our kids hung out and played together, and thankfully, I've been able to continue the conversation with the one and only Reverend Kermit Moss over the last couple of years. He is a theologian in residence for the Missing Voices Project, and so he's been hanging out with some of our folks and helping us think about what we're doing. Um, He's also a PhD candidate at Princeton Theological Seminary in Practical Theology, and he is the interim director of the Center for Black Church Studies up there at PTS. So Kermit, thanks for giving us a bit of your time today. Uh, Do you want to comment on your PhD at all, or do you want to just ignore it? Because for me, it feels sort of miserable to talk about my own work. So I don't know, where are you at today with that? So, I mean, if things go according to plan, we should be finished by August, the writing, and then defend sometime in the fall-ish, and at worst, we will be finished in December, but we will be finished in this calendar year. That's for sure. This calendar year. Let's make it happen. Uh, are you at the point yet where you resent your topic or do you still love it? No, I'm okay with it. I mean, it's not my, I was having a conversation yesterday. It's the topic that I need to just do, but yeah. I have another topic that I'm, that I'm really more passionate about. 
So right. once I can get this done, I, I can get into the topic and write the book that I really want to write. Right, right. Well, that's so funny. I, I feel like I'm in a same, similar place where at this point, I'm like, okay, I've done the research. I figured out these ideas. I, I'm ready to be done. I'm ready to move on to some other things that are a little more interesting to me right now, but I still need to get this thing across the finish line. So, well, I'm glad that we could, uh, I know that you're busy writing. So thanks for giving us some time here. And, um, you know, we're going to talk about some really easy things today, like racial reconciliation in the church and youth ministry. So it shouldn't be too big of a deal. Um, (laughs) But I'd love to just start with, you know, Kermit, this feels like, um, it just feels unique to me. Like this time feels a little different. There's always been conversations around race and reconciliation and youth ministry. And that's, that's not different, but there, there seems to be something that has changed in this last year, uh, post George Floyd, um, with social media, with technology, sort of accelerating conversations with the need for youth ministry to be innovative and to evolve on some level this last year. And I would love to just start by asking you, what do you see? Like, what, what are you seeing in this landscape of ministry and in the church right now as it relates to all that? So uh, a couple of things I see and just culturally, in terms of culture broadly, that is uh, important in terms of our conversation with the church and the church's response to race and racial reconciliation. So if one, this is not so much a unique time, but it is unique in terms of access so in terms of access to a conversation on race, access to information about race or regarding race, access to perspectives related to race and the connection between race and politics specifically, and then in some measure race and religion, we have, and I say we generationally across generation, we have so much access to generation that we had never had before, that we can get information, that we can respond to information, and for some of us, we can either utilize that information for a particular worldview or perspective, or we can dismiss that information, but it exists. Hmm. Second uh, thing that's very important, even with access, is the individuals have the ability to be anonymous. And so that yeah. is really interesting. So it's not simply writing a note or making a phone call and talking or hanging up, etc. It is individuals have the ability to respond to issues relating to race, but to be anonymous in the process. Hmm. And so when an individual is anonymous, it doesn't give the opportunity to, one, to build relationship, two, to hear perspective with another person, because the person could be any person. That's important. That person could be a person that we work with that's on our job, a school teacher, whatever. So whether that perspective aligns with ours or in some measure it diverges from ours, we'll never know unless that person chooses to disclose their sense of identity. Yeah. And so that makes it very interesting. It's not just anonymous in terms of how they interact, but there are people who are listening or reading things anonymously and taking it in. So we don't even know, like, for example, this podcast, there are going to be people who take this in and listen to this and there's no real conversation. It's sort of, you know, uh, a unidirectional sort of communication here. And so there are people that are taking things in and we don't know who that is and we don't know what they're taking in. And I don't know, it's fascinating to think about that, the anonymity, not only of interaction, but of what they're watching, what they're listening to, things like that. Huh. And so like an education theory, we would th- state that depending on which side of education theory that you might align with, kind of a self-directed formation. Mm-hmm. So in some measure, we think that is a positive, right? That young people or adults 
emerging adults, we use our sense of agency for our own formation, right? But in some measure, that can be very tainted. And then, <laughs> therefore, if it is an anonymous and, it's, and I would say kind of an isolated a formation outside of a sense of community, then we can run into some interesting, I would say, uh, issues that could be at hand because, you know, one is not in the community, so therefore there's no conversation with someone who had, might have a different opinion. Two, there is no debate with someone, right, that you actually care for. Right, because that changes everything. That changes everything. Right, right. Wow. So what you're saying is when people have an isolated, anonymous, self-directed formation, it's void of the consequence of community that keeps it honest. I correct. I concur. Absolutely. Hmm. That's wow. And you know, what's funny about that is I've seen this in our own church. We've tried to start conversation groups, you know, or book groups. And I think it's because people have such a consistent experience of social media that is isolated anonymous, like you're saying, self-directed, that, the, and it's been negative for a lot of those people. Oh gosh, I don't want to talk about this stuff or I don't want to talk politics. I don't want to talk race, whatever. Cause on you know, social media, it's such a vitriolic experience. Then when you bring it back to community that actually does love one another, care for one another, they're sort of worn out and exhausted by it. So they don't want to do that work there. Yeah. And then what I find, even in those communities, there's a, it's what King would say is a, it's a, it's a false peace. So, so the idea is in order to maintain community, we can't be honest with each other. So we would rather just be quiet and have a false peace where nothing is actually accomplished or no relationship is really built. But as long as that we are either in the same institution or organization or in the same space without any, you know, disagreement, then that's what we're actually looking for. And we're not looking to disagree to agree, but ultimately to work together toward a larger, broader sense of what reconciliation really is. Okay. All right. I want you to uh, bring bring people up to speed a little more on this idea of false peace, because I think that that feels like a pretty big idea. Like the idea that um, as long as we don't talk about these things, we can still kind of get along that isn't actually being in community with one another. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. Because reconciliation is not just uh, getting along. Right. That, that's the difference. That's not just the chief goal. Just, yeah, just get along. Tolerating each other and loving each other. Right. Because loving each other requires a new sense of commitment to each other, a new sense of commitment to our shared faith, and a new sense of commitment to our community regardless of what our understanding of community is, right? That, right? that we can put down, or not even put down, we can carry our difference into community, but still be be uh, be, be uh, individuals who are in relationship with each other. Huh. Huh. What does that mean in youth ministry? Oh, that's great in youth ministry because it, it gives, it gives young people the opportunity to grow. And that's what's important, to grow in their sense of identity, to grow and broaden their sense of perspective, to change their opinion. Therefore, we don't a, a person doesn't have to be stagnant, right? Mm-hmm. Because we think the idea of reconciliation is moving toward a stagnant perspective, something that doesn't change, right? Huh, okay. But it doesn't have to change. We, we are supposed to continue to grow 
to challenge our thinking as we continue to, to get in different stages in life, different stages of adolescence. That's what, that's what we that's what we tell young people to do. That's kind of the, the stages of identity. We got to interrupt some things that we inherited, right? Or that right. we just kind of could carry on from our from our parents or from other people, right? Right. Yeah, we but want that reflection and the growth that comes out of that. Yeah. Yeah, but therefore what happens is this we encourage young people to interrupt thought, but when we are adults, we want to kind of not interrupt anything. <laughs> so therefore we don't serve as good models of reconciliation, right? Because now, because sometimes adults aren't willing to challenge their what um, what Dykes would say our own inherent biases and prejudices, yeah. and we all have them. Of course, yeah, yeah. I can imagine trying to diagnose false peace, and how nobody would want to do that. Because <laughs> false peace it ultimately explodes. Okay, so how would you diagnose it? How would you try to touch the nerve of it, or how would you describe? If there was a community that was living in false peace, what would that look like? So a community that lives in false peace, you probe. One is begins with kind of the questions, right? The questions begin to elicit the, the, the real perspectives, right? So you've really got to probe. Two, you kind of look at who's in the room and who chooses not to be in the room, particularly around certain conversations. Right. Oh, so therefore, to choose not to be in the room around a conversation that could potentially be volatile or a conversation that might cause all of us in the room to become uneasy. False peace is the is the 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 choice and the the choice is based upon that you have the the option, right? Mm. So I choose to take the choice and I have the option not to be present, therefore not to maintain simply the peace of community, but really the goal is to maintain my sense of peace. And then what my sense of peace and community is. So I will choose not to respond. Or if I'm present, I will choose to respond in a way that might not be authentically what I feel. I would rather the individual, even though we might uh, disagree ideologically, theologically, whatever, I just would rather for the individuals to feel the space and the freedom to state how they feel, to give questions, to give perspective, so that we can work through those perspectives together toward a sense of love and share commitment to Christ. Yeah, but Kermit, what if their perspective is like really annoying? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I mean, this is hard. I mean, I'm saying this with, you know, obviously with certain people in certain situations in the back of my mind, obviously. Um, and I think to myself, yeah, I want that. But man, it's like exhausting right now. It's really exhausting to uh, choose to self-select into conversations with people where I'm like, I don't trust them to be open or I don't trust them to uh, actually be willing to change. But that's evidence of my own unwillingness to change, right? Right. Uh, I don't know. That's hard. I mean, I can imagine there are just so many people who are so worn out. And I say this by, uh, I'm referring mostly to white middle upper class folks that are just worn out by this conversation and they don't want to have to have it anymore because it's gotten more press in the last year than it's gotten in most of our lifetimes, or at least that's the perception of reality. And so they're doing what you said earlier. They're selecting to not be in the room for the conversation. Yeah. And, and so the, at, at, at the issue at hand is this, and this moves beyond theology. This moves beyond toward actually who do we think we are in terms of in community, who is our neighbor, but really in terms of 
who do the conversations benefit for in terms of a kind of a national identity, right? Mm. So therefore, when we don't want to be in this conversation with individuals that we are in nation with, right? Therefore, we think that their prosperity is not our prosperity, that their yeah. their progress is not our progress. And so it cl- creates these kind of lines of demarcation between who is an American, who is not, who should benefit from democracy, who shouldn't, right? And wow. and therefore, we, we never can get to a shared sense of commonality and community, not just within church, but even within terms of nation and country. Hmm. And that's important because if individuals continue to make this kind of amalgamation and intersection between kind of a national sense of identity and therefore kind of a Christianese sense of identity, then by logic, those individuals should be trying to work toward the progress and I would say the prosperity of the whole. Because if you intersect Jesus with nation, then therefore, if Jesus wants nation to prosper, then all those in nation should prosper as well. Yeah. So they can't get off the hook. Yeah, but that it's just a lack of imagination to think that if I like if my neighbor prospers, then I, it must come at my own expense. Yeah, but it's it's more than imagination. It's a lack of love. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I think it's hard to imagine that. Uh, be, well, I, because, you know, the other side of love would be or the opposite of love would be sort of a self-preservation, like an anxiety about self-preservation. So what I hear you saying is when you love your neighbor, you're convinced that it's actually their flourishing becomes your flourishing, like their wellness becomes your wellness. And so until we can get to a point where we actually can acknowledge like, hey, this is a lack of love or this is evidence of love, then we, we aren't even equipped to have the conversation in the first place. Right. So what do we do? <laughs> how do we help people? I mean, I think this actually leads back into youth ministry. I was going to say, how do we help people see one another as neighbors? And in some ways, I wonder if youth ministry couldn't be a space that actually um, invites people into that. You know, like I think about my son at the high school you know, like he is intersecting with every kind of kid in our community through sports, through classes, you know, things like that at the high school. And so to invite him to begin to see those people as brothers and sisters or as neighbors would help him move beyond self-interest or, or maybe, I, I mean, I imagine that's a part of discipleship. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think how do we get young people, how do we get people in general to see our humanity attached to others' humanity. Mm. We start to see ourselves, not just the, the not just to see persons, but see ourselves within that person and see our sense of connection to life and to flourishing and to just our Christian witness. See all that within the other person, right? Right. So seeing in terms of not just um, friendships, but friendships that turn into a sense of a broader ethical and I would say uh, a sense of virtue or action, virtuous actions in the world, right? Hmm. So for instance, me and you, right? You know, on the surface, we had one thing in common at Princeton, right? Initially, we were students, right? Right. But there had to be that something that took place beyond just being students, beyond just having children who play together. You know, that didn't bring a sense of connection to, to us, right? Right. 
Right. Our, our connection through our children did, did not mean that we were connected. And now right. I now I think, oh, this is starting to get fun. And now I think that sometimes we can start to see if someone that I know is connected to someone, then that means I'm connected, right? Okay. But it's not true. Okay. <laughs> so for instance, this how like like for instance, and, and youth minister, right? Uh, I'll give an example, right? I know the parent of kid A, so that means I know the young person. All right, yeah. So that's just not that's not reality yet. That's not reality, but that's the reality that we that we live. So now let's turn it to race, right? So now I know someone who knows someone, right? So that means race in terms of my view, racial worldview is all different. Or we'll take it a step further. I am friends with a person of this race, right? So therefore, then uh, I don't see race, right? right. <laughs> <clears throat> Hold on just a second. All right. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, so uh, this is sort of the classic, you know, I have a black friend, I have a white friend, you know, I have an Asian friend, whatever. Uh, and, and therefore, how could I possibly be racist? Oh, it goes further. It, or, or I'm married to this person outside of my racial identity. Or let's take it further. Or I have kids who are biracial. Right. So therefore, I don't have any animus toward even the the partner that I'm married to's race. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not true either. So would you say that part of part of building this bridge towards, you know, moving beyond being associations or just knowing one another towards true community, true love for one another is part of it just to acknowledge that we have been shaped by culture and that there are racist tendencies in all of us. Yeah. We, we just got to acknowledge that, that we are shaped by certain, what certain things historically we're shaped by kind of racist ideologies, plural. Mm -hmm. Also shaped by the ways that race connects to whatever kind of economic system that you're in as well. Right. So they're not, they're kind of mutual. You know, we would call it kind of racial capitalism, right? But there are certain ways that we are formed. And then when it's connected to kind of our money, our economics, our thriving, you know, that, that can, I would say, add the flame to the fire when it comes to race. Yeah. So, I mean, in order for me to begin, I have to acknowledge the, ways in which I have been brought up within a country, a system, a culture that has, you know, shaped my understanding of myself and other people that is, you know, essentially reducing people to categories in order to try and control them, whether it's myself as a white person, as a white male, you know, or, you know, someone else. And so through acknowledging that I can at least begin to try and gain some perspective from the outside looking in on myself, which I know would be impossible to be objective, you know, but I could try to gain some perspective or at least acknowledge that sort of locatedness, uh, which I'll never get away from completely. Like that'll always be my upbringing or from where I've come from, you know, things like that. Uh, But at least I could uh, embrace the humility involved in acknowledging that. And then from there, I could begin to try and move towards my neighbor. Yeah, but uh, but how hard is that now? Because to acknowledge that requires requires not just we would say some sense of you know a heart. It's kind of a general category, but it also requires our head to change, our thinking to change. Yeah, and so therefore, if we're in a kind of a 
a world right now that everything is captured in uh, 115, 30 characters. Yeah. 30 yeah. seconds, three minutes at the top. Yeah. How do you begin to change your way of thinking when we've been conditioned in some way to just, okay, let's just tweet. Okay, I got my information. Very short article got my information. Little right. video got my information, but we don't want to do the real deep, the digging. Yeah, yeah. Well, not only that, but like what you're asking people to walk away from, it, it feels like you're asking them to walk away from it. I don't think you totally are, but for me to acknowledge that I have been shaped uh, and and that I, as a cultural construct, there there are these forces that have been acting upon me. It feels like you're telling me to betray my family, possibly, or like where I'm from, or the church I grew up in, or the country that I'm a part of. You know, like I think that's why there's such a resistance right now. Uh, to say, hey, this is not a racist country. Well, how do you how do you embrace the racist ideology that is like deeply interwoven into our country without just saying, okay, I guess I hate our country, you know, like that. But that's a false dichotomy. Like I can critique the family that I came out of and still love the family that I came out of. Right. I mean, if you love King would say, if you love your nation, I love it enough to critique it enough so it can become what it should become. Right. 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 That. Yeah. You go to the doctor. If I have cancer, tell me. Tell me I have cancer. I want to get rid of it. You know? Yeah, that's, I, I don't understand that hesitation, but I, I mean, I guess I understand it, but I wish we could move past it and see that love is what's going to push us past that. But it's also identity pushes us past it too, right? Okay, say more. So for instance, all look at all of the kind of catch words within the epistles, right? You, or even if you could even go back to say, maybe Old Testament, right? This the epistles, this idea of sojourners, right? These mm-hmm. ideas of our, our citizenship is in heaven, right? right? All of these things that point to, as one scholar would say, kind of a soft difference, right? Kind mm-hmm. of distinctiveness, a soft difference, right? So, for instance, you kind of under these systems, you can't totally change them. They might not have thought about changing them, but they did think about how does my identity respond, help me to respond in a certain way that shows that I am different and I am distinct in terms of not only how I see the world, but yeah. also my person and my, my personhood, right? Very right. distinct. But so so if we start to put all of these other categories, you know, above this sense of um, identity or connection to Christ, right? Then therefore our commitments aren't the same. Right. So my commitment is to this or this or this more than my commitment is to, is if I'm committed to Christ and I'm committed to neighbor, right? There's no in between. Right. But if I'm committed to nation or denomination or all these other things first, then right. that shapes that, that turn kind of gives you kind of a different worldview. Right. Well, I think that's the sort of the tall order of Christ to come and follow me is to walk away from you know family, let the dead bury the dead. I think that's a, it's a really tall order, and it's it's hard. Oh, I, it's I mean, totally hard. Yeah, yeah. And again, though, like. I could imagine in the context of youth ministry, I keep pushing this back to youth ministry. Um, and, and I think some of the projects that we're working with in the Missing Voices Project, they have acknowledged like we want to try and create space. I'm looking at uh, the sort of little card from one of our congregations that is doing this work. They have said they want to create space for middle school kids to foster friendship across racial difference before they get too ingrained in a culture that tells them they should not be friends with one another. Right. Right. So they're trying to create space to help young people share their stories and, and actually get to know one another. Dare I say, love one another 
before they drink the Kool-Aid of culture that says you're black, you're white, you can't be friends. You know, uh, you should somehow be skeptical of one another. And so I think that's a beautiful way to think about ministry as, um, I don't know, I guess an invitation to community. But I'm sure there's more there. I mean, what do you see in that? I mean, so it's it's seeing how do we continue with, if that's the goal and the hope for this particular program, middle school, right? How do you mm-hmm. maintain this sense of continuity with where, what you start with the different ages and adolescents? That's the key, right? Okay. So it starts in middle school. How does it continue in high school? Same type, same objective, same sense of purpose, right? For this, right? Because high school is also kind of the dis- disruptive change, the age of kind of emerging sense of identity, your friend groups change, right? So you can start something in middle school and then it all can fall flat in high school. You could start right. it in high school, it could all fall flat in college. So how do you maintain some sense of continuity, some t- sense of uh, maintain and share community all the way through with friend groups, et cetera, change? So it becomes a more difficult task, even though it's important, right? Mm-hmm. But how do we, as these young people begin to change, emerge, evolve, et cetera, how do we continue to put the questions in their face that they have to gra- grapple with? That's what's important to me. So it's a question so, of who are we? Yeah. Who are we? Okay. Who are we? Okay. Who are we? It's always a question. Who are we? Not just I. Who are we? Right. Mm-hmm. And then the question of who is the we? So who are we? Who, and then who that's identified who is the we why why do we exist as a church hmm. why do why, why do we why does it even matter right hmm. that's important why does this matter since the pandemic where we can't meet why does any of this matter right right then it's the question of you know who are we for hmm. well how would you begin to answer some of those questions you you just first you probe to see where people are right yeah okay the first thing is this who are we for you know the question could be i'm for me okay i get it that's all right at least we know where you start right right, <laughs> right. i'm for and it's in a sense of racial reconciliation i am for this particular group so if i'm for this particular group then why huh and it's being for this particular group mean that I'm opposed to this group. That's a whole different question. Yeah. Because sometimes we might you know, might mix the questions up that I'm for this people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm against this person. Right. Right. Or it doesn't have to mean that. It doesn't have to mean that. Right. And if yeah. it does mean that, what do we do with it? Hmm. So. Man, I. I. I feel like I, I run the risk of this remaining too theoretical. I want to push this down into local youth ministers listening to this. All right, let's and, go for it. What's that? Let's go for it. Yeah. So local youth minister, I, I have three different youth ministers in mind right now. Right. One of which is partnering, is, is leading this project in the Missing Voices Project. It's a predominantly white Methodist church partnering with a predominantly black Methodist church. And they're sort of hand in hand trying to create space for middle school kids to, you know, foster friendship across difference. I also just met with a a young pastor of a predominantly black church, um, a word of life church. And, you know, he's convinced that the fact that their youth group, all like all black kids, that that's a problem. Like he feels really burdened 
by the fact that he has all black kids in his youth group. And then, you know, I'm talking to another youth minister and they're like, I have no idea how we would ever begin to move out this, you know, middle upper class white, uh, white Presbyterian church. I have no clue how we would move out of that space, you know, is what she said. So I'm trying to think like those three players in this conversation, they're all asking similar questions of like, how do we begin to try and take steps towards one another? You know, how, who are we? What are we doing? Things like that. How do you, you know, if you were here and you were shepherding those youth pastors, how would you help them sort of move forward? So one, I would let them know, for me, I would be like, listen, the individuals in your space are in your space for a variety of reasons, right? Let's let's understand why they're there. And then based upon the understanding of why, then we can begin to move forward, right? Some young people in those spaces are there because that's that's the closest space. Right. Yeah. Some of them are there not because they necessarily choose to be there, but because they're parents and they go with their family. Right. Right. Some of them have friends there. Right. That their friend and friend group, their peers are in this space. Right. Some of them based upon, you know, where they live, or where they go. This is the space that you're in. OK, good. Not a problem. Right. But does that now the question becomes, if I'm in the space now, does that mean or do I choose to isolate myself from other individuals who are not in this space? Right? How do okay. I feel about people who aren't in the space? Hmm. Three, am I willing and and sure and welcoming enough to either if individuals who are not in my peer group, who look like me, who come from my neighborhood, etc., if they come in the space, how welcoming will I be for and to them? Whether my church is in an urban area and it's an all black group and someone who is Dominican might come in or Mexican, hmm. or if that space is a, a white middle class space, Presbyterian church, and another black middle class kid who moved into the neighborhood comes in the space because that's the closest church and they grew up Presbyterian. Right. Right. So they, so the Nana thing becomes to, for people to get to understanding that. Particularly in my last example, there might be more more ways that we might be more in common than individuals who might have the same skin tone. Sure, sure. Right? So so how do we get to those points of commonality, right? But also appreciate difference. Hmm. And that's the hard part, right? Like me and you, we have a lot of commonality, but we also embrace our difference. Sure. But you sure. got to work to get there. And we choose to be in the space together. We choose to have some tough conversations, right? Right. And it, bec- and it gets to the point where it's, uh, it's because we actually like each other. Right. So, oh, that's good. I could preach that. How do you teach people to like each other? <laughs> not just be in the space, not just say, well, this is what Christians do, but I actually like being in the space with you. Well, but there was a third thing. There was a third space that facilitated you and I getting to know each other so that we could then get to a point where we realized, hey, I, kinda, I like this guy. You know, uh, we had the fact that we lived in this community together at school and we yeah. had a shared space of classes. And then we also had a well, not really. I guess we didn't have any classes together because you were doing your Ph.D., but um, we were in that setting together, I guess. And then we had this other third thing outside of just you and I of our kids playing together. Right. And so, you know, like that's been, um, I guess that those, those third things mediated, uh, like sort of ushered us from meeting one another to right. becoming friends. 
right? And I wonder if the church cannot be that third space that mediates and invites people and ushers them towards one another as we seek to love God and love neighbor. Like, isn't that what we're trying to do uh, is to equip the church to walk in a manner that is worthy, like to actually love one another? Yeah. So I'll throw this youth minister one-on-one. Summertime's coming, right? So what's what's going to happen this summer, right? It's going to be, a, I mean, depending on the pandemic, et cetera. So we would say pre-pandemic summer, right? Okay. It's youth trips. Yeah. But it's youth trips with what purpose? Mm. So we, we will say there are youth trips to these different places, right? Missions projects, community service projects. Evangelism, right? discipleship. Yeah. Right. Blah, blah, blah. You know, but they're doing projects and not, not, not uh, projects to, I would say, to get to know people so that you can become different, so you can be changed, right? Huh. So, so for instance, like the, the churches you were talking about, right? One church is in one section in Florida. There's other church in another neighborhood, right? So the third space that the church is, does is this. They become gathering spaces. How can we become space where people gather? Huh. So it's not just gathering on Sunday morning. It is gathering space to get to know our neighbor in a different way. Yeah. You know, so that the gathering in churches aren't just for people to come get stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's a places to come to people to get the things for there in terms of relationship that they need. That's the stuff they need. Hmm. So, for instance, church in uh, Tennessee, they just do these big community gatherings or eating. Okay. And these people just drop in the church and all they do is eat. They don't eat. They don't pray. They don't know the scriptures. They don't do anything. Right. They just literally these days a week we come for this community meal. And then begin to forge some relationships that we never would have had. Right. What do you think about those? I think it's great if you can just get people from church A and church B to say, you know what? Let's come eat. Yeah. Let's come talk. Let's be family. Right. Let's function like the idea, whatever your idea of family is. Let's function and be around, be in ways that we can kind of begin to fellowship and to get to know and love each other. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, if we're going to, I mean, I love the the benediction that our church almost every Sunday, the senior pastor of our church, uh, you know, just sort of gives this the greatest commandment, you know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And man, what if our ministries, uh, what if our ministries were designed to facilitate and invite people into loving one another? And I think right now, so much of it feels like it's bound up in stories. Like right. I think people are needing to process their stories and needing to process why they feel these ways. And they, I think that the the downside, I think there's some good sides to social media technology, obviously, but one of the downsides is that, you know, you put something out there and it just gets eviscerated, you know, and it's not a dialogue. It's like people taking shots at each other one, you know, one thing at a time. Um, and it's not face to face. It's not with each other. And I, I know there's some value and there's some, you know, opportunity within that for sure. But I think there's something different. I mean, I, there are people in my church that I love in person and can't stand online. Yeah. You know? um, so I wish that all of our interactions were in person because I would have a different sort of graciousness or a compassion for them. Uh, and so I, I, you know, but again, I think that part of people's hesitation is they don't want to have these conversations because we're almost being conditioned culturally right now. We just take shots at each other. And we don't have to have these conversations. Think about it, right? 
So I remember Chris Matthews, he grew up in Pennsylvania. I guess he was on one of the talk shows, news. Never grew up, say, did not grow up around a black person growing up. This is in the Northeast, all right? Wow. Did not have a black professor in college. And so basically kind of a whole isolated life of segregation and not by choice. Right. Right. So so imagine New Jersey, right? I'm in Jersey. It's the most, one of the most segregated places in the country, even though it's one of the most diverse, which is so strange. That Yeah, I'm shocked to hear that, actually. Yes, it's the mo- one of the most, uh, in terms of residential area, one of the most segregated places in the country. Wow. All parts of Long Island, right? So uh, upstate New York. So you can literally, a young person can literally go, you know, maybe long periods of life with no interaction between individuals who might not look like them or see the world like them. Zero. Right. So right. therefore, if the church doesn't have any opportunity to be in dialogue other than kind of this online stuff that with, like you said, there's no like, no graciousness, no heart, then people yeah. are really formed to be segregated from. Yeah. And then all of our ideas about people are purely stereotypes. Hmm. Right. Well, and that, you know, I, I wonder if people would say, gosh, if I'm, if I'm in that state, I, they would maybe feel that false peace that you referenced earlier. You know, like they're not in conflict. They're just not even engaged. Right. That's the, that's, that's youth ministries 101. <laughs> because we're not, we're not in conflict. We're just not engaged. We're literally, for some of us, we're literally concerned about the formation and development of the, in the young people within our midst. Right. And the other young people who are not in our midst, they're, how they're formed or developed, it doesn't, it's not, it's not the most important thing for us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man! All right, so you you have those three churches. They get together, and they all come together in one space. Actually, those three churches I referenced are within two or three miles of each other in St. Augustine here. Wow! So they're all—I mean, literally less than a ten-minute drive from each other. They could easily—they drive past each other every single day uh, on US one out here. So. You, if you were, you know, if they said, "Hey, Kermit, come help us," and you know, we're going to get together. What, what could we do? And we're willing to go to one another. What would you do? Would you just start with meals? Would you start with like low hanging fruit just to start building bridges? I mean, how would you invite them into that? Very low. I would do very, very low hanging fruit. You know, it's it's meals, it's it's play, it's just conversation. Very low food, just meals, play, conversation, right? Right, just things right. that we can just get to know and bond without having to go into anything theoretical, theological, or otherwise, right? Yeah, literally yeah. just being people who just are around each other doing fun and cool stuff, right? The start mean, building trust and relationship. Yeah, it's really trust building, and then we move to the the conversations that are uncomfortable. But guess yeah. what? If I have played frisbee with you for three months. Right. I feel more, you know, open to the dis- dis- uncomfortable conversation than right. when we just bring young people in the room for the first time together and say, tell me how you feel about race. What? Right. <laughs> you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. Right. 
Yeah. Two, you yeah. want to create an environment that, because we, we boundary the conversation with young people too, because we do it with ourselves. So when, well, when, yeah. so when, when, when people say things that we really don't want them to say, then we don't really know, we don't want to, to deal with that. Yeah. So we would rather kind of, you know, we say all the catchwords, just say how you feel, respect and love each other, et cetera, blah, blah, et cetera, right? But we don't really <laughs> want to hear that. Yeah. If student A gets up and says, I hate this group of people because of this, this because this happened to my sister. Right. Or this happened to my grandparents. Or I hate this group of people because of this. Or right. this group of people, you know, they might state a stereotype or trope. Right. Mm -hmm. We really don't want to have that conversation. But I would rather my next step with for those churches would be to create a space that those real conversations can take place and that people can feel like they can state it. But they got to have to be able to determine why. Yeah. If I hate you, why? And if you can't determine why and you don't want to begin to get some type of, I would say, a response to your why. Sure. Then that's that's where we have an issue. Right. Yeah. But you know, Kermit, that I mean, I've seen a few churches try to do what you're talking about. Have, have just start having conversations, start digging into the why, and people run. They do. People leave. They people leave. They don't want to do that kind of work. Now, the people who are open to it, and the people who are even a little bit open to it, might end up talking about it as being life changing and you know some of the most meaningful experiences of their life. But I, I mean, I think on some level that's discipleship in general, like right. we're actually talking about a call to come and die, like to lay down your life. You know, it's not, um, it's not just sort of coming to worship and feeling great about everything. And, and, you know, we're here to serve you and, and make your week feel like a nice little buttoned up week. Um, there's gotta be some acknowledgement that we're calling people to a thing that is costly. I'm just thinking too, like there are already spaces where a lot of these kids are rubbing shoulders but there's no one facilitating like with intent. Right. You know, like, I think about my son on the football team, you know, and it's like, okay, you look at the picture of that team and it's a picture of every kind of kid that's at that school. And so, but, and they, and they say things like they call it family, the coaches reflect the community, the kids reflect the community. And, and I know it's not the coach's job or the school's job to facilitate that much beyond that. But I look at that and I go, look, there's evidence that it's possible. It's actually possible to get these kids together and for them to have a shared sense of purpose and a sense of community. And yet, why is it that we would look to the high school and to a football team a million times quicker than we'd ever look to the church? Uh, because those kids go home. Okay, what do you mean? So Dick Gregory said, he didn't, Dick Gregory of African American Media said, I never learned shame or to hate and I, at home. I learned it at school. Huh. And so think about it. So therefore, even on the football team, right, you can have these moments of camaraderie and teamwork. And then those kids go home. Yeah. And then you can pick up and learn that stuff at home, right? Mm. Number two, you can learn it at church. Mm. So so two, how do we begin to not when it comes to youth ministry, particularly around racial re reconciliation, how do we make sure that we can there are times of separate talk, but how do we make it intergenerational? That's important. Because if, if you got kid A who's really exploring and trying to work toward recon racial reconciliation and you go home and they got parents who absolutely are opposed to the other, that's hard to deal with. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, and, yeah. and that's the reality that youth ministers face with the right. tough work of racial reconciliation. Right. So how do yeah. we bring parents in and along for the ride as we are working with young people and they are working with us and teaching us as we all work toward racial reconciliation? Hmm. Because if we don't make it in a generation, it'll fall apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are the, I'm I'm imagining people that are listening to this. I mean, this is it, it can start um, focused. It can start small, and then it gets big quick, right? Oh yeah. What are some baby steps? What are some What are some uh, What's the direction that people can start to move in? Like they maybe the youth minister listening to this is on board, but knows that the pastor or the, you know, the session or the, you know, governing body of the church, whatever it might be, they would look at you and just sort of roll their eyes, you know, um, or that they would have some parents that are not very open to this, but they have some students that are, how would you imagine helping churches start to take steps towards one another or <laughs> communities take steps towards one another, or just, even begin to do this. I mean, is it the right thing? Like, should we have churches? Should we no longer have black churches and white churches and only have diverse churches? Is that the goal? That's not the goal. This should ne that's never been the goal. All right. Say more. Cause I think that's a question a lot of people have. Like there are people in the white church that feel uh, sort of ashamed of that. And that, that black pastor I was talking about, he felt not, he felt very uncomfortable with the fact that his church was almost predominantly black. So there are some people that wonder, should we just be starting intentionally diverse spaces or, or, you know, churches or youth groups. So you can start intentionally diverse churches. So that's not a bad idea, right? Okay. But, but church usually reflects, at least in my experience, it reflects the neighborhood. So for instance, if the black pastor is in a black neighborhood and then who is the, the pastor in community with the black neighborhood. So therefore there'll be black people in church. Right. Now if if black pastor wants to find ways to make to to create uh opportunities for conversation for kind of shared ministry etc then that's another question, another approach, right? Right. Okay. You can't feel bad if I if my you know if I'm a, I would say I'm, I'm an immigrant who comes to this nation. I could be African, I could be Filipino, an immigrant Coming to this nation, the first place that I'm going to go is to find other immigrants for a sense of community. Okay. Therefore, if I go to an immigrant church, that's not a bad thing. Hmm. It only becomes a bad thing when I isolate myself from the world and from everyone else that I'm so isolated that I begin to see, you know, other people through the perspectives of other, you know, my elders, et cetera, et cetera. That's when it becomes problematic, right? Right. Right. Okay. But when I choose not to be in community with people when there are opportunities to do so. Yeah. So culture is not the bad thing, right? Yeah. No. And and, and secondly, even with that question, right? The, 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 you know, I'm gonna try not to get myself in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Kermit. So if we're talking about diverse churches, right? How much of the cultural diversity will be seen throughout the church? Okay. Not simply, not simply in leadership. So we're not saying I got a a black pastor, white pastor, Asian pastor. So that makes me a diverse church. So now we're looking at kind of how how does this church? What is kind of an ethos or way this church looks at the world? Right. 
Okay. So if this world's church has got all these diverse people, but still continues to kind of have a, a worldview of kind of white Western, then what's the difference? You just got people who look different, but it's the same church. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can think of a, <laughs> yeah, I should not. Even if your that. leadership is like all these different people, but your senior pastor will never be an Asian person, then that's a problem. Yeah. If, if it never could be. Yeah. So yeah. it's not that it couldn't, but if it never could be. Right. Then we go to a bigger problem. And even with that person, what's their worldview? Right. Is their worldview anti themselves, anti other, and kind of engrossed in the sense of kind of middle mainstream worldview or not? Right. Right. So you could perpetuate you could perpetuate the same mainstream and have don't matter the person in the pulpit. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I, I just feel like this concept of false peace feels like a really central theme here that there needs to be an openness to diagnosing what, you know, these moments when we feel a sense of peace, we need to ask ourselves and examine, is that a false sense of peace? Am I open to the other? Am I in relationship in any meaningful way? Um, And if I'm not, then, I mean, if it's just because you're in a community that is like so segregated and you never interact with those folks, okay, well, maybe we need to think about what it means to move outside of that. Um, but there's nothing wrong with being a black person in a black church or a white person in a white church necessarily. But that's an interesting question is, that you just brought up. Like, would it never make sense to have a person of color in the pulpit of this white church? Because if that's the truth, that might be a problem. You know, um, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's so interesting, Kermit, to ask these questions because they're they're loaded and there are so many layers to it. But when it so often what it does come back to is, do you know and love someone uh, like different than yourself, and can't that be the vehicle into understanding and into compassion and into love? Yeah, it can be, and it, it could be the, the the avenue to self correction, right. to to kind of a different trajectory in our formation, and kind right. of a different trajectory in our personhood. Because the discipleship is all about becoming. That's what it literally is. We're becoming like Christ, and which Christ? Who's Christ? Oh. <laughs> Which question is a gospel, man? What's Kermit, the gospel? There's, only, there's only one, and he's got blue eyes. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay, Kermit, just say it, man. Come on. Because we're becoming, we have an idea of Christ in our head. Yeah. And we become whatever representation of Christ that is. And unfortunately, yeah. in this context, it's a context that's got a history connected to it. That's not been the best for all of us. Right. Kermit, why are you going to open this door 54 minutes into the podcast? I don't know. I just went to the grocery store this week and I saw uh, like think Time Magazine and whatever, all these things about Jesus and this and that. Yeah. And this is just Jesus didn't look like me. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the aesthetic does matter in some way. Right. But it's not. But it's not the most important thing. That's the. That's the right. thing, right? Hmm. Because if Jesus doesn't look like me, but Jesus, but Jesus, love and commitments are so incredible that I definitely want that. Then that's the Jesus I want to serve. Right. Yeah. Well, even just being able to see that enacted or embodied by someone else, I think is is you know. 
you can see that you can you can walk through churches, through communities, through high schools, whatever, middle schools, and you can see people that really do truly encounter folks that look different than themselves, that are different different from themselves, and take joy in that. And they and it's I would argue theologically, it's because they're encountering Christ present in the person. Right. And so um, you know, if Christ doesn't look like you or doesn't look like me, okay, that's that's a different conversation. But man, like when I encounter Christ in you, then my love for you grows. And our my inability or other people's inability to encounter Christ in one another, that to me seems to be, you know, the root of the issue. Um, that's the that that would be the false sense of peace that, oh, I'm fine with these other people. But I haven't actually been able to have the eyes to see Christ in them. So uh, I'm going to throw some theology at you. 56 minutes in, right? All right, let's do it. False sense of peace, right? Okay. A false sense of peace, it removes the idea of suffering. Say that again. So, so I'm, you know, there's elements of... I would say our current theological scope for probably 30 years, maybe longer. Okay. The idea of Christian and suffering, those are like oil and water. Okay. So if we, so move, we think being a Christian is going to mean that we don't suffer. We don't suffer. And so, but we're su- not suffering for the sake of suffering. Right. You're suffering as uh, Peter would say for good. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Produces fruit. Right. I mean, it grows us up into the likeness of Christ. So in relation to the this, this racial reconciliation and the work to water, it is hard work. Mm. So it is teaching and conversing and having a conversations with us, including young people. That is this something that's worth suffering for? Mm. Because this this work. Oh, man. Is hard and is it worth suffering for? And is the suffering toward racial reconciliation is it redemptive? Is it for good? And is that good worth it? Yeah. See, and Kermit, that goes full circle where we started a long time ago, saying, you know, if I cannot imagine that your flourishing is my flourishing, then I cannot imagine redemption or reconciliation being worth it. Right. You know, like. I I imagine a lot of people would say, no, I, I don't like the idea of suffering for the sake of being in more full communion with my black and brown brothers and sisters. I could imagine folks not, I mean, sure, they're not, they don't want to come out and say that that's not worth it, but they probably don't see or don't have the eyes to see or don't have the imagination to conjure up why it would be worth it or, or the fact that we're missing so much to not be in that place. And I can imagine that being the case, no matter what your sort of racial or ethnic background you come from, like, why would I need something more than what we've already got? Right. Hmm. I mean, we would say, regardless of what our perspective on the atonement is, which theory, right? Mm -hmm. At the uh, the end of the day, Jesus thought it was worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus thought it was worth it. Yeah, thought it was worth it. Hmm. And so do we think that racial reconciliation is worth it? And when we do, we will do whatever we can imagine, whatever we can try, whatever fails and we try again, we'll do anything, dinners, potluck, 
going out, marching. We'll try anything because it's, yeah. we know it's so important. Right, right. I think that might be where we have to stop, Kermit. We're an hour in, and the question is simply, do you think it could be worth it? Yeah, it is. You know, And yeah, I think so. I mean, I also, I think there is something to be said for, man, like, what could I be missing if I don't learn from, love, walk alongside? You know, I mean, at its very... I don't know. I don't want to instrumentalize the whole thing and say it's about getting something for yourself, but man, like you're, you're living a small version of life. Like you're missing out on what it means for the kingdom of God to be here. And now when you cannot imagine the kingdom being present in the other, you know, I mean, you're just missing this beautiful, I don't know, the presence of God. Yeah. We're missing the presence of God. We're missing the opportunity of the freedom to love. Right. Because hmm. I, I can't be fully free until you're free. Well, th- and that comes back to that zero-sum game question, right? Yeah. Because I think a lot of people would say, no, I can be free if you're not free. And I would just want to argue, no, no. If you walk by someone who isn't free in that, then you're not free either. That's a, that's a part two, Kermit. Yeah, it is a part two. This is fun. I mean, I'm not sure where we went. <laughs> but I know it was fun. I know that much. <laughs> well, I think people that are wrestling with this will be at home with it. Other folks might be annoyed. Who knows? And if they're annoyed, they're probably not listening now because we're an hour in. Yeah. You know? So they're gone. Who cares, right? So the people that are still rolling with us, they're they're sitting there going, okay, yeah, these are the kind of questions I'm messing with. So for me, what I take away from this conversation is this question of, is it worth it to find ways to sort of uh, live in community with one another, to you know, create that third space to facilitate that. But I also, I'm really gonna wrestle with this false piece because I feel like you just nailed me to the ground with that. Because my guess is a lot of people are choosing to embrace false peace right now because it's just too hard. Yeah. To do otherwise. But it's worth it. There's a lot of... Um theological progressives and political liberals who embrace the false peace. Trust me. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. (sighs) All right, Kermit. We close each of our podcasts with a blessing or a benediction of sorts. Would you, with those youth ministers in mind who could be listening, uh, those folks out there who are wrestling with these questions, who are wondering what role does reconciliation play within their youth ministries? They're trying to figure these things out. Um, and they're responding to the community, the congregation that is, you know, that's been given to them. What sort of blessing or benediction might you offer those folks? Oh, my benediction would be this. God, help us to persevere. Help us to not quit easy. Help us to win we are very weak because we're just giving all we can, God, for this. Help us to know that your grace is sufficient. And God, ultimately, remind us, God, that it's worth it. It is worth it. And it is worth it. And the why it's worth it because of love. And thank you for loving us and help us to exhibit that love to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. And you go in peace. 
Amen. Thank you so much to today's guest. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices podcast. If you are loving these episodes and want to be one of the first to hear about a new episode being released, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. And you can also check us out on Instagram and Facebook and see what we're up to in St. Augustine at Flagler College Youth Ministry.